Amen to that song. You know, the uh, security that we possess is not because of our grasp upon God, but it's because of Jesus' grasp on us. And uh, his, his salvation is, is all of grace and how good it is, how secure we are when we are in Christ. Well, uh, it's greetings from Bethany and Edwards. It's always a delight to be able to come here to speak. I, I have about once a year when I'm able to come and share with you, and it's always so very sweet to be with you and to see what God is doing in your midst. Uh, uh, we are about ready to go on youth camp with your youth and Bethany's and Living Hopes, and I, I get to spend at least four days with the youth, and that's always some of the, the best best uh, days of my whole year. And so pray for those teenagers, won't you? Pray that God would do a work in them. It's a time where they can get away and we can share the word with them and also just sort of relate to them along with their youth leaders. And, and oftentimes God does a, an amazing work. And so pray for that, for those teenagers that will be going this week uh, with, the, with the Bethany Fellowship of Churches. Well, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13 today. Uh, if you remember, back in October when I was here, I began a series with you in 1 Corinthians 13. I know Daniel preaches some long series, but this probably be the longest series that you will ever experience because I only come here once a year to preach. And uh, there's going to be about six, seven messages in 1 Corinthians 13, but I've decided I'm going to do a series with you. So keep your notes each year when you come back, and, uh, and we'll uh, keep going through this. This has been a theme for me that, that has made a dramatic impact as we went through this with our church uh, a little over a year ago, and it, it continues to be a theme that I don't want to uh, depart from. Uh, it, it was a, such a powerful impact upon my life as I studied 1 Corinthians 13, what it meant for my life, what it meant for a vision for the church. And I trust that as we go through 1 Corinthians 13 together also, um, that God will continue to work love in, the, in his church family. Uh, so let's uh, read 1 Corinthians 13 together, uh, be uh, verses 1 through 8a, this is the beginning of 8. Um, Paul would write, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy nor boast, it's not arrogant nor rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable nor resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. May that be true in this church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to open up your word together. I pray, O oh Father, that your spirit would be with me, empowering me, uh, and even more, using the feeble words that I would share to powerfully impact hearts. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has never received your love in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day where they open up their hearts and say, God, I need to be loved by you. I need to be loved with a saving love, a love that would bring forgiveness of my sin, a love that would grant me communion with you, 
a love that would bring me into an inheritance with all the saints, indeed with Jesus Christ himself. Lord, uh, I pray for those uh, who would not know you that today, Father, you would draw them by your love. And for those who do, who love you, and who love you because you first loved them, I pray, O Father, that you would convince us all of the priority of love in your church family, and that you would help us to have a clear vision for our part in that. Father, that uh, love would not be an add-on to our Christian life, but it would be the very center. For you are love, uh, eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, loving each person in the one divine Godhead in a mystery, and then in creating us, uh, creating us in love. So, Father, help us to reflect your image by loving one another and by loving you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. A little over a year ago, I was returning home from a pastor's conference in Los Angeles and was looking forward to some quiet time of reflection and contemplation on the plane. It was a Saturday morning and I wanted to finish up the message for the next day. And so when I took my seat, uh, there was no one sitting next to me and I sort of internally rejoiced, hoping that that seat would remain open. Uh, But God had another plan. You know, God often has other plans, doesn't he? We have our desires, and then God has his will, and his will prevails. So a young gentleman about my age sat in the seat next to me. I was a bit encouraged as he initially appeared to also want to just simply have a quiet plane ride. We briefly introduced ourselves to one another. John shared that he was a leader in the Jehovah Witnesses Church. And that his purpose of traveling from L.A. to Dallas was to get on another plane to Chile where they would uh, join a whole bunch of uh, Jehovah Witnesses and build a kingdom hall there in Chile. Now Jehovah Witnesses, if you're not aware, teach that Jesus is a created being. That he is not God come in the flesh. uh, That uh, God is not triune, uh, three persons in one Godhead. Um, This belief places a person outside of God's salvation, that in order to be brought into the gospel, one must believe in Jesus, believe him as, in him as God's son. And so this belief places all those who reject Jesus as God come in the flesh outside of forgiveness, outside of eternal life. Now, I wish I could say that in my time with John, John became convinced of the truth of Jesus' deity. No truth is more significant to our hope of eternal life than the truth of Jesus being God come in the flesh. God, as man, dying upon a cross uh, in order to provide an atoning sacrifice for sin and being raised the third day. I share this story by way of introduction to 1 Corinthians 13 for two reasons. First, the story illustrates that love demands us to act in ways that our flesh naturally resists. And secondly... The story illustrates that love is the most powerful apologetic that the church owns to convince the world of the gospel. The first uh, truth that I want to think about for a moment is that love demands we act in ways that our flesh strongly resists. Now, I confess that my flesh did not want to get in a conversation with John regarding the gospel. 
It's the last thing my flesh wanted to do. Ironically, my flesh wanted peace and quiet to reflect on this love chapter so I'd learn how to love other people. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? <laughs> so Lord, you know, shut down this conversation so I could teach others how to love tomorrow morning. Um, <clears throat> for a while, I did re resist pursuing conversation with John, and again, he seemed to be fine with a quiet ride uh, to Dallas. Yet I sat there silently for a few moments after John told me about his commitment to the false religion of the Jehovah Witnesses. And my mind went to that future day when John and I will stand before God to give an account of our lives. My mind saw John standing before God in that last day, and I saw him as one who is yet in his sins uh, without a sufficient Savior, uh, without forgiveness, without God's life placed in his soul, without reconciliation through Jesus. In rejecting Jesus as God, he had rejected all of God's provision for eternal life. And my mind pictured me looking at him and then him looking at me and asking me the question, Rich, if you knew that my eternal destiny was dependent upon me knowing Jesus as God come in the flesh, why didn't you talk to me about it? If you knew that I would spend eternity separated from God forever and ever, why didn't you care enough to try to engage me in conversation? Granted, I probably wouldn't have listened to you. I probably wouldn't have believed. But why didn't you care enough to talk to me about him? Well, that uh, conversation between me and, and the Lord uh, sealed the decision. I knew I needed to share and talk with him. I told John that I wanted to talk to him about the Lord Jesus because I wanted to see him in heaven, that I cared for him, and that my, uh, my conversation here was not to get into an argument or even into a debate. That was not my purpose. My purpose was to love him as God loves him. You see, love demands that we act in ways that our flesh strongly resists. That shouldn't surprise us, and yet it's important for us to, to, to understand because as we commit ourselves to loving one another, that means that we're not just committing to love in ways that our flesh naturally enjoys. And there are a lot of those in a church, that we would love one another in the church in, a, in, a, in ways that our flesh enjoys. We love getting together for a picnic or to a fellowship meeting, maybe a small group where we just have gotten to know each other and enjoy each other's company and, and the jokes and the praying and everything that goes on with it. And it, it doesn't challenge our flesh. It doesn't challenge our flesh. But if we are committed to love, please understand that we're committing ourselves to doing something which our flesh is going to pull back on us and say, no, don't go there. The second truth that this uh, story illustrates is that, our, that love is our most powerful apologetic to convince the world of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus. So I asked John to share his story of how he became a Jehovah Witness. And he related he grew up uh, in a Roman Catholic family. And he was very devout as a Roman Catholic. And as he read his Bible, though, he became convinced that Roman Catholicism contradicted God's word. And so he began searching for truth. He went to Idaho. He ran into some Mormons. And for a brief time, he became a Mormon. But as the more, the more he read uh, the book of Latter-day Saints, uh, the, the, the book of Mormon, the more he saw that it, too, contradicted what the Bible taught. And so he searched some more. And there he ran into 
the Jehovah Witnesses. He said, on my search for truth, I read John 13, 34, and 35. And in John 13, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love toward one another. And John shared with me, I realized that I was searching for some place that would exhibit that kind of love, where the members really, really loved each other, because that is what Jesus says is an authenticating mark of truth. And I'm searching for truth, and so now I'm going to start looking at the people. And he says, and when I went into the assembly of the Jehovah Witness, that's what I found. I found a group of people who really, truly loved one another. And I believe him. I believe his experience was valid. Now, love is not the only authenticating mark of God's people. And that's where John went amiss. Uh, sound doctrine, understanding what God has said about himself, about his son, about salvation, about the cross, about eternal life. These are all essential as authenticating marks of truth. Furthermore, practical righteousness is also a fundamental mark of uh, a people who possess God's truth. And the Jehovah Witnesses fall short of God's standard of a true church by its denial of uh, the Trinity, of, uh, of God being triune, three persons in one Godhead. And as such, they worship a different God than the God who reveals himself in Scripture. But isn't Satan so crafty? Satan is crafty in the way he produces counterfeits as people are searching for the truth, counterfeits that, that often look very, very similar to the genuine, genuine article and yet off just a bit. John's sad story illustrates the principle that the true church's greatest apologetic to a broken world is love. Love within a spiritual family. I don't think John is alone in his search for truth by looking for a community, a place where brokenness of relationship is not yet invaded. People see brokenness in relationship all around. They see it in themselves. They see it in their families. They see it in the workplace. They see it in their neighborhoods. They see it in a country. And they're looking for, is there some place where God's truth has made people whole in relationship, where, where love actually exists? And that's what, why Jesus' words in John 13 are so very powerful to us, because it is possible for us to be orthodox in our doctrine. It is possible for us to be obedient in practical righteousness. And yet, if we have not love, here's what Paul is going to say, all that matters nothing. We're missing an essential ingredient to mark of an authentic church. And we're unable then to bring witness to broken, uh, unbelieving people regarding the genuine authenticity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we as a church do not love one another as Jesus loves us, we will destroy our influence in this world. And it's influence we desire, isn't it? You know, I, I've had many conversations in recent months about the woeful direction this country is going, conversations with other believers uh, in reference to more morality, in reference to uh, uh, political engagement, in reference to, to economics. And believers are asking the question, what can we do to bring about a wholeness in our country, to bring about a health? Friend, might I say it, the greatest way that we can change our country is by strengthening our own local church and strengthening our local church's gospel witness to our community and to the world. The greatest way we strengthen our 
gospel witness to our community and our world is by pursuing love with one another. When we do that, I believe the world will sit up and take notice. They might even say, now I'm not sure about the message that I hear them proclaiming, but look at them. Look how they love one another. That is Jesus' argument in John 13. So the next time we get discouraged by our president's actions or by the moral depravity of our culture, let's not merely grumble or complain or uh, enter deep into despair, but rather let's do something that could actually make a difference. Let's commit our hearts to say, look at the brokenness of the world. I am going to love my brothers and sisters in my own local church, and I'm going to love them deeply, and I'm going to love them well. I believe it is through love that the gospel becomes defendable to a world that is looking for love. Well, first we're going to look at the priority of love that Paul sets before us in the first three verses. Let's read that. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Think of that. Speak with such eloquence, truth about God, but don't have love. It's a noisy gong. In other words, people won't hear the message. They won't hear the sound and take note of it. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If we possess such orthodoxy in our doctrinal statements, such, such strength in our understanding of the gospel, such faith so as to even remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, in other words, I become amazingly generous with all of my worldly goods, that I'm free from materialism but have not love, he goes on to say, I gain nothing. If I deli even deliver up my body to be burned, if I become a martyr, sacrificing my very physical life for the cause of the gospel, but have not love. And he's talking about love in the church family. He says, I gain nothing. Apostle Paul is presenting to us the priority which love has in the church of Jesus. Now when Apostle Paul writes this beautiful piece of lyrical prose, He's not writing it for a wedding ceremony. Now, I've read this passage at wedding ceremonies, and I will continue to read this passage at wedding ceremonies. It's a lovely piece of Scripture to read at a wedding ceremony. That is not who Paul is addressing. Who is Paul addressing? He's addressing a local church like this one. He's saying, I want you, when you read this, I want you to think about your brothers and sisters in your own local church, and particularly your brothers and sisters who you, whom you have problems with. Because the church in Corinth, it's filled with division, it's filled with fighting, it's filled with quarreling, it's filled with conflict. And he says, I want you, when you read this chapter, I want you to think about those people in your own local church who are really hard to love, who have hurt you, who have spurned you, who have wronged you. And I want you to think about them when you read this chapter so that you can apply it toward them because that's what will make a church a church that is able to glorify God and worship Him. When a person's born again, he or she is born into a spiritual family. We are not given God's life in our soul simply so that we could individually have communion with God. We are given God's life in our soul so that we can relate to God and commune with Him in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So indeed, we do have a personal, intimate relationship with God, but we have that relationship shared with in a family environment in which Jesus teaches us to pray, 
our Father. It's a community prayers that God te- that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. So this is one of the main truths that Paul is driving home in 1 Corinthians 12 as he is setting the foundation for 1 Corinthians 13. So in 1 Corinthians 12, and you might just turn over there, verses 12 through 21, he uses this analogy of a body. So he, he moves uh, with these analogies of the church. He calls it a family. Every time he uses the word father to reference God or, or brother or sister or reference to uh, other believers, he's using a family analogy. But he's also going to use this analogy of a physical body. It's fascinating what he says. Look at verse 12 through 21. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. I just want you to notice how often he uses the word one body, one body, one body. So as I read through this, just take note and ask yourselves the question, what point is he pressing to this church that's in conflict? One body, one body. He'll say it over and over again. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say because I'm not a hand I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say because I'm not an eye I don't belong to the body. That wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. In other words, there's no one member who can decide for themselves independently, ah, I'm not really a part of the body. He says, by saying that, it doesn't make it less so. (laughs) That you are where God has placed you to be, and if you are in Christ, you are in his body, and you are a member of his body. You may not act like a member, you may not function as a member, but that does not make you less of a member. That's his point. He goes on, verse 16, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? In other words, we need each other, we're interdependent. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, and notice this, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. In other words, we can't push other members of the body out of the body. We can't say, hey, you hurt me, you wronged me, you gossiped about me, you said something offensive to me, so I'm going to treat you as though you're not a part of the body. Nope, can't do that. Because God arranged the body as he willed for his glory Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable we bestow with greater honor. So the church is much, much more than a place to go to hear a nice sermon and sing some inspiring songs and hear others pray prayers. The church is God's family. It's a body. Each member contributes to the health of the whole. And what 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13 tell us is that as each individual members of the body, we do have a different function in the body. But there is something that's common for all of us, and that is that we all share the common ministry of love to one another. There's not one person that says, well, I'm, I'm a, an eye, so I, I don't have a ministry of love. I'm an ear, so I don't have a ministry of love. No, the eye does the seeing, but he, as, as he or she does the seeing, they do it in love. 
The ear has a ministry of hearing in the body, but as it does so, it, it's a concern and care for the whole. That's, that's Paul's point as he, he shares this metaphor and leads us into 1 Corinthians 13. How are we connected to be in God's plan for bringing glory to his own name? Look at verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's living out the reality of the gospel. So if you stub your toe on your way to bed in darkness, your body doesn't say, oh, too bad, toe. That's too bad for you. (laughs) Your whole body reacts and responds to the pain in that single member. And the whole body begins to nurse that member and to bring it back into calm. So that's what happens in the body. We, we rejoice when one, part, when one member is blessed and we, we mourn when another member is hurting. That, that's what God has designed for this church to be. And that's the reason why in verse 31 he says this, and I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And that's where he continues to talk about love and its priority in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this is a more excellent way. There's some things the church in Corinth had right, but they missed this in a big way. Love wasn't the center. You know, um, I'm thankful for the, the, the fellowship we have uh, as Bethany Fellowship of Churches with Bethany Baptist and Bethany Community and Living Hope. And, and we sort of have, share a, 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 a common DNA of a church. One of the commonalities in our DNA is we're passionate about God's word, we're passionate about sound doctrine, we're passionate about the glory of God. And so um, I think that all three churches are really strong, and it would be very hard. Now again, we need the Holy Spirit to protect us at all times from every, every angle. But I think because our focus is so strongly on sound doctrine and, and uh, uh, the, the, the declaration of the gospel in its purity, that it would be hard for a false teacher to come in to this church or to Bethany Baptist or Living Hope and, and have very much leeway, get, get very much of a, of a hearing. There's, there's too many of y'all. You, most of you are truth lovers. And most of you, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. You're, gonna, you're either going to challenge it directly or you're going to bring it to the attention of the leaders. That, that's sort of part of the DNA. It's a healthy thing. That's a good thing. But one danger of a truth-oriented church is the danger of taking our eye off of this issue of love. So that it's possible for a guy like John to go to the Jehovah's Witness where there is no gospel and experience more love than he might go to an evangelical church when he hears the true gospel. And that would be amazingly sad, wouldn't it? And that's the reason why Apostle Paul calls the church here in Corinth together and says, hey, let, let's, let's have a huddle here. Let's talk about how important love is. I, I want to show you a more excellent way because if you have sound doctrine but you don't have love, it really doesn't matter because no one's going to listen to it and it's not going to have any influence. And so let's have a huddle. Let's show a more excellent way. And then he, he lauds this, this, this attribute of love. There is no substitute for love in the church. Not preaching, not teaching, not miracles, not sacrifice, not impact, not converts, not talents, nor gifts. That's what the first three verses say. All our work, all our faith, all our commitment, all of our efforts, all of our successes as a church completely lose their value, totally lose their value altogether if we don't love each other. When we think about the responsibilities we have as a member of our local church, let me ask you, do you think about the responsibility to commit yourself to a ministry of love? So as you entered church this morning and came here, were you thinking, I have a responsibility to have a ministry of love today. I don't know, Lord, where you're going to have me express that. I don't know what what open door you're going to give me, 
But I have a responsibility to come here with a view and a commitment to pursuing love with other brothers and sisters here. And so, Lord, use me in that way. That's, that's what 1 Corinthians 13 calls us to. Uh, on this uh, pastor's conference I went to, I met a businessman, uh, he was a very, very successful businessman from Seattle, and he was enjoying the pastor's conference as well. Uh, it was uh, at Grace Community Church, and so really you know, sound. And that uh, was his nature. And so I asked of him of his testimony. He says, well, he says, in my late 20s, I nearly ruined my life. Uh, I, I, from 18, year, 18 years old up for the next decade and more, uh, I separated myself from God. I never went to church. I never read the Bible. I was raised in a Christian home. But I completely abandoned everything regarding the faith. And I was ruining my life. And particularly the sin of, of alcohol, the sin of drunkenness was ruining my life. So I was very functional, I was, uh, I was still uh, proficient in my job and career, and I was advancing and making money, but at home, uh, everything was being broken apart, and inside, everything was being broken apart by the sin of drunkenness. And so he says, I came to the end of myself, and that's when I remembered that my mom and dad taught me the scriptures. I started reading the Bible again. He says, that's where God met me, and he changed me. He freed me from the bondage of sin that I was in, and he gave me a whole new life. And so he says, I looked at my wife, and we had a couple little kids, and I said, hey, we're going to go to church this next weekend. I hadn't gone to church for over 10 years. We're going to go to church. And it, he also had kind of an understanding to go to church, this gospel preaching church, because that's the family he grew up in. And uh, he said this to me. It's very interesting. He said, when I first gave my life to Jesus, I expected to go to a local church and immediately find 200 new best friends. He says, up to that point, I had no Christian friends. That wasn't the life I was living. And I expected I'd get in church and immediately 200 people would surround me and be my best friend. So that's, that was the experience that I was anticipating. He goes on to say, in my experience, this has been my greatest disappointment with the church. Now, this disappointment didn't allow him to to become resentful or bitter toward the church. He's serving in the church. He's, he's worshiping God in the church. He's teaching in the church. It stimulated him to think deeply how he can contribute to love in the church. But he said to this day, it's still my deepest disappointment. And I thought, oh, that is a grave, grave problem. Let's take time to consider how we can be used of God to stir up love in our own local church. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love. Let's take some time and think about that. To love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the, the time for the end is getting closer and closer. <laughs> Let's be about the Father's business. And the Father's business is love. That's the focus here. So we come together, we're not just, we're not just assembling together, we're, we're assembling, and as we assemble, we're encouraging one another in love for one another. Coming to church is exciting when you have God's command to love one another. God will open doors that will surprise you. If we pray, God, help me to communicate kindness, help me to communicate love to two or three people today. Lord, lead me to the ones that you would have me to show love and speak kindness to. You know, every Sunday, I guarantee you, there are people who are coming into this assembly really hurting. And they don't show it on their faces. How are you doing? Doing fine. Doing great. Thanks. 
But if someone would take enough time to just sit with him, so no, really, let me, let's sit down. I want to pray for you. Let's talk. How's, how's things going in your life? You'd be shocked at the doors that would open for you to minister just simply love. And you'd also be surprised at the impact just that simple expression of one person doing that every Sunday would have upon this local church. The source of love now. No one naturally loves as Jesus loves us. <clears throat> we naturally love our close friends and family, people we click with naturally, but no one naturally obeys this new commandment that Jesus gave to us to love one another as he loves us. It's a new commandment, and, and what's new about this commandment? Because in the Old Testament, we we're commanded to love our neighbor. So what's new about the commandment that Jesus gave in John 13? What's new? He says, I want you to love just as, just as I have loved you. That's what new, is new about it. It's, we have a measure. Whoa, wait a minute. I am to love another person just as Jesus loved me. How did Jesus love me? While I was still a sinner, he died for me. That's how he loved me. While I was still poking at him, rejecting him, sinning against him, he loved me just as I have loved you, he would say. Now, that kind of love, that measure is too, too great. It's too grand for any of us in our own strength. That's why we must not live in the power of our own strength. We cannot produce Jesus' love for one another from the fountain of our own will, our own efforts, our own desire. Love is the product of God's Spirit that's at work in us, overcoming selfish desires of our flesh. So that's the reason why we need to commune with God daily, walk with the Spirit. It's going to be a fight, Galatians 5 tells us. There's a war that's happening inside of us. There's the, the desires of the flesh that are striving against the desires of the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are striving against the desires of the flesh. These are opposed to each other. Do not think that when you take up the mantle of a ministry of love, it's just going to be easy, sweet sailing. It's not. It's going to be a war. God's going to ask you to love people that you absolutely don't want to love. You want to stay as far as you possibly can from them. It's going to be a war between the Holy Spirit and the flesh. But here is what happens if you walk by the Spirit and commune with God, and have his sanctifying influence upon your life, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's, that's the fountainhead of all the other descriptions of what the Spirit produces, of his fruit in our life. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love that flows out in a joy, and a peace, and a patience, and a kindness, and a goodness, and a faithfulness, and a gentleness, and in a self-control. The miracle of sanctification Sanctification is the work of God, the continued work of God's Spirit in us after He forgives us, after He grants us eternal life, reconciles us, and justifies us. You know, for a long time, until I, I did a, this intense study of 1 Corinthians 13, I thought of sanctification primarily in terms of practical righteousness. So if I'm going to measure, Rich, how are you doing in reference to sanctification, in reference to conforming your life to Jesus? I would think primarily of of practical righteousness. In other words, am I more obedient to the commands that God sets forward in Scripture? And while that's a great measure of sanctification, we shouldn't remove that, I think the center is right here in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul would say to Timothy, the whole goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart, sincere faith, and a good conscience. That's, that's the whole goal of our instruction. That's what sanctification is all about. So, now, instead of asking myself, am I growing to become more practically righteous like Jesus was righteous? Am I growing to practically submit my life to, in obedience to God like Jesus submitted his life in obedience to the Father? 
Instead of asking that question first, the first question as I think about my own sanctification is, am I learning to love like Jesus loves? That's the measure. That's the center. That's where to begin as, you're, as we are evaluating the growth of faith, the growth of sanctification in our own lives. Now, the practice of love. So, last time we were together, I set before you the first two of 15 qualities of love that Paul sets in front of us. So, he sets in front of us 15 qualities of love. The list is not exhaustive, but it's very helpful, and it's very active. In other words, if you could put on your Greek glasses for just a moment, these words that Paul sets before us are not adjectives. They are all verbs. And that's why it's very hard to even translate this. So, so love is kinding. It acts in kindness. It, it's, it's motion. It, it's action. Love is patient. It, it acts in patience. It's a verb, not, a, not an adjective in the Greek New Testament. And so here, Paul is wanting us to know that love is not sort of an internal feeling that we have inside of our hearts toward people, but love is something we do, some way that we engage other people. That's what love is. Because if you ask yourself the question, well, do I love my brothers and sisters in the church, and you look around and look around the room, yeah, I I have a good feeling toward them. And you think, well, that, that means you, you love, and you, that's the end of the story. You don't need to think about that anymore because actually, you're actually fulfilling the requirement of God in sanctification. But what Paul is saying, no, that's not how you evaluate whether you're loving one another. You evaluate whether you're loving one another on the basis of your actions, on the basis of some things you refuse to do in reference to them and other things that you pursue that you are, take the initiative to do energy poured out into their life. So we looked at love is patient, for instance. In other words, love refuses to act or speak in ways that hurts the people who have hurt us. So someone hurts us. Their words, maybe gossip, criticism, uh, angry attitude, isolation, rejection, all those things. How do we respond? Well, if love is dominating our hearts and if we say my first focus is not self-centered, in other words, how did your actions affect me? That's where our flesh always is, by the way. When someone hurts us, how did this affect me? And we get, get all bowed up and defensive. And No, the first action is, how can I minister to the person who is hurting me? Something's going on in their spirit. They need the love of God. I don't even know how to reach them, but I'm going to be patient with them. Because God has already satisfied my soul today by making me happy in him through the gospel of Jesus. And I, now I can act in patience towards such a one. Second quality, love is kind. Kindness, again, takes the initiative to give to people who might not even appreciate those gifts. It's that warm handshake. It's the encouraging word. It's the listening ear. It's, it's the heartfelt prayer. It's the financial gift in time of need. It's the invitation to a meal at our house. It's the befriending of a person who's lonely and isolated. Love is primarily concerned with giving happiness to others, and it acts in that way. Now, we talked about those last time, so let's spend the rest of our time that we have together um, in these last two qualities. Love does not envy, it says. Now, again, there are 15 qualities. In the years ahead, I'll be walking them through, through with you. <laughs> but we're going to look at these two. Love doesn't envy, and love doesn't boast. Love does not envy. It does not negatively compare what others have and are with what we have and are. Possessions are often a part of our envy, but possessions are just a narrow, slender aspect of envy. 
Envy looks over the fence in another person's life and peers down and they say, I wish I had their house. That's a possession. You know what? I wish I had their talents. They're so gifted. I wish I had their marriage. They seem so happy and we're so filled with conflict. I wish I had their kids. Their kids are so obedient and ours are so unruly. I wish I had their job. Wouldn't it be great to have their job? Mine's filled with thorns all over the ground. Theirs looks so delightful. I wish I had their health. You know, I see them running marathons. You know, this is the church that runs marathons. I, I don't understand it. <laughs> but I can't, I can't run 100 yards because my knee, man, look, I wish I could run a marathon. That would be awesome. I wish I had their grades. I wish I had their athleticism. I wish I had their opportunities. I wish I had their retirement account. I wish I had their spiritual gifts. That's what's happening here. Love is actually happy that the other person has a blessing that I don't have. Love's actually happy. It says, I can rejoice in that. Envy is first and foremost an assault upon God's character. What are we saying about God when we envy another person? We're saying, God, you did not give me enough and you gave that person way too much. <laughs> when we envy others... We are sitting in judgment upon God. Who are we to begrudge God's generosity to others? Is God not allowed to do whatever he chooses with what, he, what, what belongs to him? So someone says, but envy, it's an internal, invisible sin. Is that really that serious? Yes. <clears throat> envy will destroy your soul and will destroy a church. Think of the disaster that Cain brought upon himself and upon his family through envy, envying his brother Abel's sacrifice. Think of the disaster Joseph's brothers brought upon Joseph and upon their whole family by envying Joseph's multicolored coat. Think of the envy, think of the disaster, darkness that Satan brought upon this world. The entrance of sin into this world and everything bad, all the brokenness came as a result of Satan saying, I want to be like God. James says this, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So let's take inventory of our lives this morning and ask ourselves, do I rejoice with others who are rejoicing, or do I resent when they're able to rejoice over things that I don't possess? Then the fourth quality, love doesn't boast, it doesn't parade itself. John Wooden, the famed basketball coach at UCLA, would tell his players that he didn't want, to, want anyone to know whether they had won or lost after a game by the look on their faces. When you win, you walk off the court not boasting, not in the face of your opponents, but just simply with this calm gladness. When you walk off the court after a loss, you walk off with the same calm gladness. He says the satisfaction is in knowing you've done your best. I think that's, that's close to being biblical. I, I, I would rephrase it. It's knowing you've done your best for the glory of Christ. For the glory of Christ. Envy and boasting are twins. In Corinth, boasting was at an art form. They said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And then there were really spiritual people. You know what? We are of Jesus. <laughs> They're boasting about the small groups they belong to. And they thought our group is, is better than your group. They're boasting about the gifts, spiritual gifts, gifts that were given for the common good. Boasting, it's so sneaky. 
We have nothing in ourselves to boast about, nothing. Not one talent, not one accomplishment, not one success is from us. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Here's a little practice here. Just take one breath. Why'd you, what, what made you able to do that? Was it you? Was it your body's really strong? Or was that a gift from the Lord? Well, I'll tell you, the Bible says it was a gift from the Lord. And if I don't have the power to take one breath, what else could I possibly boast about regarding myself? Everything is from the Lord. That's why everything goes back to the Lord. Everything goes back to Him. The gospel removes all cause for our boasting in and of ourselves. We of all people should be a people who do not boast, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And even that faith, it's not of yourselves. Even that faith, it's a gift of God. Otherwise, we could boast about our faith. But we have no room for boasting whatsoever. The gospel has removed it. Boasting gives adoration and praise to oneself. So let us be careful that when someone shares with us a story of some bit of goodness or some bit of accomplishment, we're not waiting in the wings to tell our story that would move that person from the center of the conversation. Oh, you caught a, 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 a five-pound bass. Well, let me tell you what I did last weekend. <laughs> Let's just rejoice and say, man, that is awesome. That's an awesome experience. Oh, your child won a scholarship for, for college. That is awesome. Let's just sit there, not envying and not boasting. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. It rejoices together. Love is the giving of oneself in diligent pursuit of God's eternal happiness for others for the purpose of glorifying God. That's the definition I've come up with. It's giving oneself, not just time and energy, but even one's very heart, one's very person, to pursue the eternal happiness of God for another person, that they would be eternally happy in God. So how do we begin? If you, if you take this message, okay, I want to have a ministry of love, how do you begin? Well, first, I would say you need to receive God's love in Christ. If you have not received God's love in Christ, this message is really not for you. The, the first message for you from the gospel is to receive God's love. The only reason and way we can love God or love one another is because God has first loved us. Receive him as your savior. Receive the life that he offers. But if you have already done that, if you've already received God's love, enter deeper into the joy of God's love for you. If, if you're saying, I want to love others, the first thing that's vital for us to do is not just simply make more efforts to love others, but to get every day a goal that we would say, I want to make my soul happy in God. God is an awesome God, and if I took some time to praise him and to receive his love to me in Jesus Christ every day, it is out of the love that God has given me that I would be enabled to love others. But each day, commit yourself to that. Then, repent of a lack of love in your heart for all of God's family. In other words, if there's any member of God's family that you're not loving, repent of that. The test of your love is not in whether you're, you're loving people who are easy to love. The, the, the crisis, the crutch, the, 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 te the, the test of your love is going to be those people who are in your mind right now, you're saying, boy, I really have a hard time loving that person. 
That's going to be the test whether God's supernatural love takes over and you worship him. Then discipline yourself to pray for God to lead you into loving others. Ask God to bear his fruit of love in your soul. Make that a passion and a prayer. And finally, I would say, purpose to act upon God's promptings. In other words, set love in motion. It is through this that the gospel witness of a church is is enabled and empowered. I want to tell you one story in closing. Uh, Most of you probably are familiar with Art George's pastor at Living Hope. We have uh, three churches in the Bethany Fellowship of Churches. And Pastor Art is is the pastor, uh, senior pastor over at Living Hope in Bartonville. Uh, Art came to Bethany Baptist before he was a believer. He had gone to a church all his life and was very committed to that church, but that church didn't proclaim the gospel. He never heard the gospel in that church. So his wife had started to come to some Bible studies and started getting some relationships with some of the women. And so she started asking him, Art, would you mind, uh, would you be willing to come some Sunday? No, no, over a year, I I believe, is the story. No, I'm not going to go. I already have a church. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. Finally decided, okay, I'll go with you this one Sunday. While he was there, he heard the gospel through the preaching of the word. And that had a bit of an impact upon him. It got him thinking. But right after the service, there was a man about his age, uh, so he was in his 30s about that time, a man about his age tapped him on the shoulder, hey, my name is Gary. Uh, just want to introduce you myself. I'm Art. He says, well, Art, you know, we're not doing anything for lunch today. We don't have any plans. Would you like to go out for lunch with us? We'd love to get to know you guys. He says, I'd been going to church all my life in the church that didn't proclaim me the gospel, and not one time had anyone ever invited me out for lunch. First Sunday I come here, and someone invites me to lunch. Far more than the message that I preached, far more, was the simple expression of love of this man who sat behind him that opened up Art's heart to receiving the gospel. Love, love. Love one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. I pray, O oh God, that we would be a people who love one another just as Jesus loves us. And Father, I pray that you would powerfully impact our own personal lives, our own personal ministries, but more the witness of this church and its influence on this community by the way that these brothers and sisters love each other. In Jesus' name, amen.